0: Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral. You can check out all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. You'll also find a link there to send me a message and some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. A few episodes ago, I read The Red Deal, Part 1, and in this episode, we're going to look at The Red Deal, Part 2. The Red Deal is uh, published, is compiled and published by The Red Nation. You can find them at therednation.org, and The Red Deal, Indigenous Action to Save Our Earth, Part 2, is called Heal Our Bodies. Principles of unity. We are indigenous revolutionaries. We are comrades and relatives first and foremost. We practice radical democracy and compassion for all relatives. Despite differences in organizational role or affiliation, we are equals in struggle. We are anti-capitalist and anti-colonial. We are indigenous feminists who believe in radical relationality We do not seek a milder form of capitalism or colonialism. We demand an entirely new system premised on peace, cooperation and justice. For our earth and relatives to live, capitalism and colonialism must die. We belong to long traditions of indigenous resistance. We claim our rightful place among all freedom fighters around the world. We are not the first, nor will we be the last. We are the ancestors from the before and the already forthcoming. By carrying this history forward, we actively create the world in which we want to live. We seek to not just challenge power, but to build power. We are not simply a negation of the nightmarish colonial present, colonialism, capitalism, heteropatriarchy, imperialism, and white supremacy. We are the embodiment and affirmation of a coming indigenous future, a future in which many worlds fit. We believe that all oppressed nations have the right to self-determination, to decide their own destinies. We, the Red Nation, are self-determining peoples. We enact the principles of freedom and integrity in how we seek to live as good people of the earth. We organize through education and agitation for revolutionary change. We encourage our relatives and comrades to believe in revolutionary change. We advocate for global decolonization. We agitate among the poor, the working classes, the colonized, and the dispossessed to instill the confidence to fight back and take control of our destinies. We believe in pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. We remain accountable to our people and our nations. We do not have perfect politics. We do not believe in factionalism or rigid ideology. We can die having had the correct positions, but having accomplished nothing and freed no one. The desire to be right or perfect is the highest form of cynicism. Our role as revolutionaries is to cheerlead the movement at all turns. Above all else, we desire to be free and believe we will win. Optimism will thrive so long as we struggle for freedom. We believe in correct ideas which only come through revolutionary praxis and struggle. Our power and judgment comes from the labor of our struggle. We are not above the people. When the people move, we move with them. We are the permanent persuaders who believe revolutionary change is not only possible but inevitable. Like our hearts, our politics are down and to the left. And because we are the five-fingered ones, our fists are the size of our hearts. We raise our fists to lift the hearts of our people. We give everything and take nothing for ourselves. We uphold personal and organizational integrity at all turns of the movement. Change is dialectical and full of contradictions. It often comes without notice or without being noticed. Reactionary tendencies and contradictions will seek to destroy our momentum, diminish our optimism, and test our integrity. They will come in many and oftentimes unexpected forms. Even when in doubt, we pledge to remain faithful to our political principles and steadfast in our commitment to revolutionary struggle and optimism. We are the Red Nation. Mission: The Red Nation is dedicated to the liberation of Native peoples from capitalism and colonialism. We center Native political agendas and struggles through direct action, advocacy, mobilization, and education. Who We Are We are a coalition of Native and non-Native activists, educators, students, and community organizers advocating Native liberation. We formed to address the invisibility and marginalization of Native struggles, within mainstream social justice organizing and to foreground the targeted destruction and violence towards Native life and land. Areas of Struggle Indigeneity We struggle for the defense and livelihood of Native peoples and lands. Indigeneity is a political condition that challenges the existence and domination of colonial nation-states. Liberation We struggle for the repatriation of Native lives and land. Liberation is not about, quote, healing or, quote, getting over it. It is a struggle for material and structural transformation. Resistance. We continue the long history of Native anti-colonial resistance by reviving active resistance as fundamental to liberation. Coalition. We mobilize for widespread action and community engagement for Native struggles for liberation. 10-point program. We demand an end to violence against Native peoples and our non-human relatives through one, the reinstatement of treaty rights. From 1776 to 1871, the US Congress ratified more than 300 treaties with Native nations, a provision In the 1871 Indian Appropriations Act withdrew federal recognition of Native nations as separate political entities contracted through treaties made with the United States. As a result, treaty-making was abolished, and it was established that, quote, no Indian nation or tribe within the territory of the United States shall be acknowledged or recognized as an independent nation, tribe, or power with whom the United States may contract by treaty. We demand the reinstatement of treaty-making and acknowledgment of Native independence. We demand Native nations assume their rightful place as independent nations, guaranteed the fundamental right to self-determination for their people, communities, land bases, and political and economic systems. Number two, the full rights and equal protection for Native people. Centuries of forced relocation and land dispossession have resulted in the mass displacement of native nations and peoples from their original and ancestral homelands. Today in the United States, four of five native people do not live within reservation or federal trust land. Many were and are forced to leave reservation and trust lands as economic and political refugees due to high unemployment, government policies, loss of land, lack of infrastructure, and social violence, yet off-reservation Native peoples encounter equally high rates of sexual and physical violence, homelessness, incarceration, poverty, discrimination, and economic exploitation in cities and rural border towns. We demand that treaty rights and Indigenous rights be applied and upheld both on and off reservation and federal trust land. All of North America, the Western Hemisphere, and the Pacific Indigenous land. Our rights do not begin or end at imposed imperial borders we did not create nor give our consent to. Rights shall be enforced pursuant to the United Nations' declarations on the rights of Indigenous people, UNDRIP, and historical and political doctrines of specific tribes. Number three. The End to Disciplinary Violence Against Native Peoples and All Oppressed Peoples In the United States, more than 3 million people are incarcerated in the largest prison system in the world. Native peoples and oppressed peoples are disproportionately incarcerated and persecuted by law enforcement. Within this system, Native people are the group most likely to be murdered and harassed by law enforcement and to experience high rates of incarceration. This proves that the system is inherently racist and disciplines politically disenfranchised people to keep them oppressed and prevent them from challenging racist institutions like prisons, police, and laws that maintain the status quo. Racist disciplinary institutions contribute to the continued dispossession and death of Native peoples and lifeways in North America. We demand an end to the racist and violent policing of Native peoples on and off reservation and federal trust lands. We demand an end to the racist state institutions that unjustly target and imprison native peoples and all oppressed peoples. Number four, the end to discrimination against the native silent majority, youth and the poor native youth and native poor and unsheltered experience oppression and violence at rates higher than other classes and groups of native peoples. Native people experience poverty and homelessness at rates higher than other groups. Native youth suicide and criminalization rates continue to soar. Native youth now comprise as much as 70% of the Native population and experience rates of physical and sexual violence and PTSD higher than other groups. Native poor and unsheltered experience rates of criminalization, alcoholism, and violence at higher rates than other groups. Because many Native youth and poor and unsheltered live off reservation and trust lands, they are treated as inauthentic and without rights. Native youth and Native poor continue to be marginalized and ignored within Native nations, dominant political systems, and mainstream social justice organizing. We demand an end to the silencing and blaming of Native youth and Native poor and unsheltered. We demand an end to the unjust violence and policing they experience. Native youth and Native poor and unsheltered are relatives who deserve support and representation. We demand they be at the center of Native struggles for liberation. Number five, the end to the discrimination, persecution, killing, torture, and rape of Native women. Native women are the targets of legal, political, and extra legal persecution, killing, rape, torture, discrimination, and disenfranchisement in North America. This is part of the ongoing process of eliminating women's political and customary roles as leaders in Native societies. In the United States, more than one in three Native women will be raped in their lifetime, often as children. Since 1980, about 1,200 Native women have gone missing or been murdered in Canada. Many are young girls. Native women are at higher risk of being targeted for human trafficking and sexual exploitation than other groups. Native women continue to experience sexism and marginalization within Native and dominant political systems and within mainstream social justice approaches. We demand the end to the legal, political, and extra-legal discrimination, persecution, killing, torture, and rape of Native women. Women are the backbone of our political and customary government systems. They give and represent life and vitality. We demand that Native women be at the center of Native struggles for liberation. Number 6. The End to the Discrimination, Persecution, Killing, Torture, and Rape of Native Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer, and Two-Spirit people LGBTQ2+. Native lgbtq 2 people experience persecution, killing, torture, and rape within Native nations and within dominant society. The processes of colonization and heteropatriarchy impose binary gender roles, nuclear family structures, and male-dominated hierarchies that are fundamentally at odds with Native customary laws and social organization, where lgbtq 2 people historically held positions of privilege and esteem. The effect of this system for Native LGBTQ2 is violent. Native LGBTQ2 experience rates of murder, sexual exploitation, hate crimes, discrimination, substance abuse, and homelessness at high rates. Like Native youth, poor, homeless, and women... Native LGBTQ2+ continue to be marginalized and ignored within native and dominant political systems and within metropolitan-based social justice approaches that ignore the mostly rural-based issues of native LGBTQ2+. We demand an end to the legal, political and extra-legal discrimination, persecution, killing, torture and rape of native LGBTQ2+ in native societies and dominant society. Native LGBTQ2 plus are relatives who deserve representation and dignity. We demand that they be at the center of the native struggles for liberation. 7. The End to the Dehumanization of Native Peoples The appropriation of native imagery and culture for entertainment such as sports mascots and other racist portrayals and the celebration of genocide for holidays and amusement, such as Columbus Day and Thanksgiving, dehumanize Native people and attempt to whitewash ongoing histories of genocide and dispossession. These appropriations contribute to the ongoing erasure of Native peoples and seek to minimize the harsh realities and histories of colonization. These appropriations are crimes against history. We demand an end to the dehumanization of Native peoples through cultural appropriation, racist imagery, and the celebrations of genocide and colonization. Condemning symbolic and representational violence is an essential part of any material struggle for liberation. 8. Access to appropriate education, health care, social services, employment, and housing. Access to quality education, health care, social services, and housing are fundamental human rights. However, in almost every quality of life standard, Native people have the worst access to adequate educational opportunities, health care, social services, and housing in North America. Native people also have higher rates of unemployment on and off reservation than any other group in the United States. Access to meaningful standards of living is historically guaranteed under many treaty rights but have been consistently ignored and unevenly applied across geography and region. We demand the universal enforcement and application of services to improve the standard of living for Native peoples pursuant to provisions in treaties and the UNDRIP, whether such peoples reside on or off reservation and trust lands. North America is our home and we demand more than mere survival. We demand conditions to thrive. 9. The Repatriation of Native Lands and Lives and the Protection of Non-Human Relatives The ethical treatment of the land and non-human relatives begins with how we act. We must first be afforded dignified lives as Native peoples who are free to perform our purpose as stewards of life if we are to protect and respect our non-human relatives. The land, the water, the air, the plants, and the animals. We must have the freedom and health necessary to make just, ethical, and thoughtful decisions to uphold life. We experience the destruction and violation of our non human relatives wrought by militarization, toxic dumping, and contamination, and resource extraction as violence. Humans perpetrate this violence against our non human relatives. We will be unable to live on our lands and continue on as relatives recognized by the ancestors, if this violence is allowed to continue. We demand an end to all corporate and U.S. control of Native land and resources. We demand an end to tribal collusion with such practices. We demand that points 1 through 8 be enforced so as to allow Native peoples to live in accordance with their purpose as human beings who protect and respect life. Humans have created this crisis and continue to wage horrific violence against our non-human relatives. It is our responsibility to change this. Number 10. The End to Capitalism-Colonialism Native people are under constant assault by a capitalist colonial logic that seeks the erasure of non-capitalist ways of life. Colonial economies interrupt cooperation and association and force people instead into hierarchical hierarchical relations with agents of colonial authority who function as a permanent occupying force on Native lands. These agents are in place to control and discipline Native peoples to ensure that we comply with capitalist colonial logics. There are many methods and agents of enforcement and discipline. There are the police... There are corporations. There are so called, quote, normal social and cultural practices like male dominance, heterosexuality, and individualism that encourage us to conform to the common sense of capitalism colonialism. These are all violent forms of social control and invasion that extract life from natives and other oppressed peoples in order to increase profit margins and consolidate power in the hands of wealthy nation-states like the United States. The whole system depends on violence to facilitate the accumulation of wealth and power and to suppress other, non-capitalist ways of life that might challenge dominant modes of power. Political possibilities for native liberation, therefore, cannot emerge from forms of economic or institutional development, even if these are tribally controlled under the guise of of self-determination, or, quote, culture. They can only emerge from directly challenging the capitalist colonial system of power through collective struggle and resistance. We demand the end to capitalism colonialism on a global level. Native peoples, youth, poor and unsheltered, women, LGBTQ2+, and non-human relatives, experience extreme and regular forms of violence because the whole system relies on our death. Capitalism-colonialism means death for Native peoples. For Native peoples to live, capitalism and colonialism must die. What is the Red Deal? The Red Nation, TRN, invites allied movements, comrades, and relatives to implement the Red Deal, a movement-oriented document for climate justice and grassroots reform and revolution. This is not a region or nation-specific platform, but one that encompasses the entirety of indigenous America, including our non-indigenous comrades and relatives who live here. This is a platform so that our planet may live. We cannot expect politicians to do what only mass movements can do. Join us as we build this movement. No skirts required. All are welcome. Skoden. The proposed Green New Deal GND legislation is a step in the right direction to combat climate change and to hold corporate polluters responsible. A mass mobilization, one like we've never seen before in history, is required to save this planet. Indigenous movements have always been at the forefront of these struggles. Democratic Socialist Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the main proponent of the GND, is herself a water protector who began her successful congressional run while she was at Standing Rock protesting the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. Thus, the GND and the climate justice movement in North America trace their origins to indigenous frontline struggles. With this background in mind, TRN is proposing a red deal It's not the Red New Deal because it's the same old deal, the fulfillment of treaty rights, land restoration, sovereignty, self-determination, decolonization, and liberation. Ours is the oldest class struggle in the Americas, centuries-long resistance for a world in which many worlds fit. Indigenous peoples are best suited to lead this important movement, but it must come from the ground up. The Red Deal is not a counter-program to the GND. It is a call for action beyond the scope of the U.S. colonial state. It's a program for indigenous liberation, life, and land, an affirmation that colonialism and capitalism must be overturned for this planet to be habitable for human and non-human relatives to live dignified lives. The Red Deal is not a deal or bargain with the elite and powerful. It is a deal with the humble people of the earth, a pact that we shall strive for peace and justice, and that movements for justice must come from below and to the left. We do not speak truth to the powerful. Our shared truth makes us powerful. And this people's truth includes those excluded from the realms of power and policymaking. In the spirit of being good relatives, the Red Deal is a platform that calls for demilitarization, police and prison abolition, abolishing ICE, tearing down all border walls, indigenous liberation, decolonization, land restoration, treaty rights, free health care, free education, free housing, full citizenship, equal protection for undocumented relatives, a complete moratorium on oil, gas, coal, and carbon extraction and emissions, a transition to an economy that benefits everyone, and that ends the exploitation of the global south and indigenous nations for resources, safe and free public transportation, restoration of indigenous agriculture, food sovereignty, restoration of watersheds and waterways, denuclearization, black self-determination and autonomy, gender and sexual equality, two-spirit trans and queer liberation, and the restoration of sacred sites. Thus, the Red Deal is red because it prioritizes indigenous liberation on the one hand and a revolutionary left position on the other. It is simultaneously particular and universal because indigenous liberation is for everybody. Where will we get the resources to achieve these monumental tasks? We call for a divestment away from police, prisons, military, and fossil fuels and reinvestment in common humanity for everyone, including health, dignity, and well-being, as well as the restoration of indigenous lands, waters, airs, and nations. Principles 1. What creates crisis cannot solve it. We've all heard the term divestment. During the no Dapple uprising in 2016, Water protectors called upon the masses to divest from financial institutions, investing in the pipeline as a strategy to reduce harm to people in the planet, and specifically, indigenous peoples. The Red Deal continues this call for divestment from fossil fuel industries, but we go one step further. We draw from black abolitionist traditions to call for divestment away from the caging, criminalizing, and harming of human beings— and from the exploitative and extractive violence of fossil fuels. But divestment is only half of the equation. What will we do with the resources that will become available once we divest from prisons, military, the detention industry, and fossil fuels? As of 2015, military spending accounted for upwards of 54% of all discretionary spending at the federal level. Proposed discretionary spending for national security, quote-unquote, in 2020, comes in at $750 billion, $718.3 billion of which is slotted specifically for the U.S. military. In a given year, the U.S. provides $3.8 billion in military aid to Israel, $182 billion is spent each year on cops and prisons, and eight white dudes all except one American citizen, own over half the world's wealth. This doesn't even include the revenues from the fossil fuel industry. Compare these figures to the $68 billion allocated for education in 2016 and the $186 billion allocated for mental health services in 2014. And only $66 billion of discretionary funds are spent on health care each year with $5.4 billion allocated to Indian health services. Despite this allocation of resources, health care is still unaffordable for almost half of Americans. Despite treaty and federal obligations, Native people, especially those living in urban locations, experience the worst health care of any demographic. And industries like pharmaceuticals control public services through lobbying and getting millions of people hooked on opioids. Yet these already low allocations for health and human services aren't low enough for the ruling class and their elite friends in government office. The U.S. government is threatening to cut spending on education, health care, food stamps, and other crucial health and human services in order to further inflate military spending. Imagine if the U.S. military had to hold a bake sale to keep its doors open instead of preschools, domestic violence shelters, art and language programs, and family planning clinics. This is what the Red Deal proposes. Instead of scraping pennies together to salvage a barely livable life, imagine if we had over a trillion dollars to invest in health care for everyone, to increase teachers' pay so they can provide quality, free education to everyone, to repair roads and provide safe and accessible public transportation for everyone, to invest in large-scale language revitalization programs in every indigenous nation on the continent, There is an overabundance of resources that go into demonizing indigenous water protectors and land defenders, Muslims, black people, Mexicans, women, LGBTQ2+, and poor people, while the health of the earth and human beings receives barely a sliver of attention or resources. With the resources we gain from divestment, we could end world hunger, illiteracy, child hunger, homelessness, and build renewable energy tomorrow. Literally. 2. Change from below and to the left. Sixteen states have passed anti protest laws in the wake of Black Lives Matter and No Dapple, with 20 more currently considering similar laws. This backlash proves that people who demand a dignified life threaten the powerful. It has been forgotten that the current GND legislation was only possible because its main advocate, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, was inspired by the No Dapple uprising. Indigenous people are and have always been at the forefront of the struggle for climate justice. While politicians withdraw from the social justice demands of the GND, like healthcare, housing, and education, we embrace them. But we know that we must go further. We must throw the full weight of people power behind these demands for a dignified life. People power is the organized force of the masses, a movement to reclaim our humanity and rightful relations with our earth. With this, not only will we topple power, but we will build a new world from the ashes of empire, a world where many worlds fit. There can be no rich people without poor people. The rich depend upon the poor. But the poor don't need the rich. This is our power, people power. Although indigenous peoples live in a capitalist society, we continue to practice people power. For example, Pueblo communities feed for nearly every ceremonial event. The original purpose of this was to pry surplus from those who held more wealth and redistribute it amongst those who didn't so that neither a poor class nor a ruling class could form. Everyone's material needs were met. There was no starvation, no homelessness, no alienation. Everyone was a relative and everyone had relatives. Capitalism destroyed this world. We must destroy capitalism to bring it back. People power is the most direct form of democracy. Everyday people decide what's best for themselves, not the elite and powerful. The wealthiest in the world have refused to pay taxes for more than a century, while indigenous people starve and die of preventable diseases. We believe that crying on the shoulder of the man who stole your land is the opposite of people power. You can't smudge the murder out of capitalism, nor can you expect the powerful to give up their wealth out of the kindness of their hearts. So how do we get things to change? Lobby Congress and politicians? No. We reach out directly to our people, hitting the streets and galvanizing the support of the community. Once community support is established, politicians will follow. Our leverage is people. Leverage comes from a movement behind you. Only when people move do we build enough power to force concessions and eventually win. 3. Politicians Can't Do What Only Mass Movements Do Everyone has heard the term reform. Politicians use it all the time when they're describing their plans for social change. We believe in reform too, but we're proposing a different kind of reform. Reform typically means asking the powerful to implement gradual changes that we hope will eventually improve our lives. This approach attempts to treat the symptoms of crisis rather than the structures of power that create crisis in the first place. For example, in March 2016, white police officer Austin Shipley had a mandatory lapel camera on his uniform when he murdered 27-year-old Navajo mother L'Oreal Jean in broad daylight in Winslow, Arizona. Lapel cameras are often cited by police reformers as a necessary deterrent to police violence and killing. Yet Shipley murdered Sinjin with impunity and faced no charges. Cops in Winslow continue to harass and harm our relatives. In the same year that Sinjin was murdered, police arrested over 800 water protectors and brutalized and traumatized countless others at Standing Rock. That same year, police killed Native people at higher rates than any other group and killed Native women at six times the rate of white women. Yet, when proponents call for murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls, MMIWG, reform, the solution is more police to address the killing, rape, imprisonment, and torture of Native women. In 2018 and 2019, we saw an increase in deaths of Indigenous children in migrant detention centers along the U.S.-Mexico border. We witnessed the shooting by U.S. Border Patrol of Claudia Patricia Gomez Gonzalez, an Indigenous woman from Guatemala. And we mourned the deaths of trans-Indigenous woman Roxana Hernandez in an ICE detention facility. Immigration reformers have called for Border Patrol to keep families together and have also filed lawsuits to call for the construction of, quote, more humane cages for these families and individuals. The question these reformers ask is how can we improve the police with, quote, cultural sensitivity training? Which politicians should we lobby to make these improvements? Instead, we ask, Why are police considered the solution to the crisis of indigenous life? Why do we even need the police? Chinga la migra. Abolish ICE. And no ban on stolen land are not mere slogans. They are demands for a dignified life. The police, military, and border patrol exist to protect the interests and wealth of the elite. Instead of providing homes, health care, and food, all we get are more cops, more soldiers, more walls, more poison water, and more cages. The interests of the few always outweigh the needs of the many. This is how power works in a world structured by capitalism. Reformists misunderstand this fundamental truth about capitalist states. States protect capital and the ruling class, not life. This is true for police who protect private property while caging and murdering people. This is true for U.S. military campaigns that protect the interests of multinational corporations by bombing villages, schools, and mosques. Reformists who appeal to the state for change compromise our future. We refuse to compromise. Our philosophy of reform is to reallocate social wealth back to those who actually produce it. Workers, the poor, indigenous peoples, the global south, women, migrants, caretakers of the land, and the land itself. The types of reform we seek include the complete moratorium on oil, gas, and coal extraction, the restoration of indigenous land, water, and air to a healthy state, and special protections for workers and the land. These non-reformist reforms are crucial to achieving abolition, decolonization, and liberation. Where will we get the money to fulfill these reforms? We will dispossess the wealth from corporate polluters and settler governments and redistribute it to the masses, restoring dignity and creating jobs to caretake and heal the planet and build our collective future. From Theory to Action Bosses run the world from the White House to the highest executives of multinational corporations that plunder the earth. Yet, there is no unified left that poses a real threat to the bosses. We have witnessed massive grassroots rebellions against the fossil fuel industry, police violence, racist immigration policies, and labor exploitation. Yet, nothing is coalesced into a unified mass movement. We believe that struggling for these reforms to restore the health of our bodies and the earth will serve as the most powerful vehicle for building a mass movement. We cannot simply be against something. We must be for something. We will make policy recommendations that can be used at any level of government, from the grassroots to the tribal council to the state. We cannot turn away from the state because the state has its sights set on us at all times. Indigenous people know that every moment of our existence is mediated by the state. It is illegal to give birth in our traditional homes without state permits, and we aren't even allowed to visit our sacred sites that lie within federal lands without proof of identity. The state harasses us wherever we go because we are not supposed to exist. We are supposed to be gone, erased off the lands the U.S. so desperately wants to exploit for profit. Wherever the state and forces of capital set their sights, urban indigenous youth, Women, migrants, black people, LGBTQ2+, are sacred mountains and waters. We must agitate and organize. We cannot simply build isolated utopias while the rest of the world burns, nor can we wait for the slow process of reformist reform to kick in. We cannot simply heal our individual trauma, nor can we consume better to save the environment. We cannot vote harder and place all our hope in a few individuals in Congress. Climate change will kill us before any of these strategies liberate the planet from capitalism. By fighting for non-reformist reforms in and with our most vulnerable communities, we will drain power and resources from state surveillance and harm and reinvest these resources in the well-being of all. We will regain our collective power. We will be inspired by a vision for the future that will outpace the state at every turn. We will be disciplined and organized to capture the momentum of the next rebellion and catapult it into a full-blown mass movement. We will fight for the redistribution of the wealth stolen from us, whether it is land, water, air, or labor. We will carry each other's dreams and dignity in our hearts. We will remain steadfast in our commitment to each other. We will seek peace and right relations between all life. We will do this in such a way That adheres to the principles of abolition, anti-capitalism, and decolonization. Join us in this struggle. Our areas of struggle: one, end the occupation; divest from the following police and military institutions; defund police, La Migra, child protective services, and border town violence; abolish incarceration. Prisons, juvenile detention facilities, jails, border security, and the U.S. military occupation everywhere. Abolish imperial borders. Number two, heal our bodies. Reinvest in the following institutions and services citizenship and equal rights for everyone, free and sustainable housing for everyone, free education for everyone free health care for everyone free and accessible public transportation for everyone suicide prevention and non-carceral mental health services healthy indigenous and abundant food for everyone clean water and air sexual domestic violence services and reproductive justice and mmi wg2 Number three, Heal Our Planet. Create jobs by reinvesting in the following. Clean, sustainable energy. Traditional and sustainable agriculture. Land, water, air, and animal restoration. Protection and restoration of sacred sites. Multi-species caretaking. Enforcement of treaty rights and other agreements. Child care elder care domestic work Quote, "we cannot simply build isolated utopias while the rest of the world burns nor can we wait for the slow process of reformist reform to kick in we cannot simply hear our individual heal our individual trauma nor can we consume better to save the environment we cannot vote harder and place all our hope in a few individuals in congress Climate change will kill us before any of these strategies liberate the planet from capitalism. The Red Deal, Part 2, Reinvest, Heal Our Bodies We are in a time of great suffering. The last few months have been filled with popular uprisings in Lebanon, Peru, Ecuador, Chile, and elsewhere. Although different in important ways, these protests have one thing in common. Everyday people are fed up with the state. They are fed up with the burden of austerity policies. They are fed up with political corruption. They are fed up with politicians and wealthy elites getting richer, while a growing majority of the world's population gets poorer and suffers more. Today, almost half of Americans cannot afford a medical or life emergency exceeding $400 and the majority of the world's population struggles to pay for basic necessities like food, housing, transportation, and education. The culprit of this current state of affairs is neoliberal capitalism. Under neoliberal capitalism, everyday people have had to work longer and work harder while wages have decreased, benefits have dried up, and state-sponsored support mechanisms have evaporated through privatization or budget slashing. Women and caretakers who perform care work like child rearing and domestic labor have been hit hardest because their labor doesn't qualify as, quote, work worthy of wage compensation, despite the net increase in actual work they have had to do because of the collapse of social and economic stability across the board. Neoliberal capitalism is enshrined in state austerity policies that shrink public programs for food, housing, education, transportation, and health care in the name of, quote, fiscal responsibility, while simultaneously offering subsidies and incentives for multinational corporations to continue plundering the earth. As they facilitate new forms of capital accumulation for these corporations, Neoliberal states simultaneously claim to have a scarcity of resources, which is a narrative they peddle to justify the slashing of social welfare. This is simply false. Why else would military spending increase during the neoliberal period, or the wealthiest 5% of the world's population get even richer? The truth is that the state hoards these resources for the ruling class, which watches with indifference, while millions or billions perish. Capitalism creates and accumulates wealth based on speculation and searches constantly for new frontiers of value. Under neoliberalism, capitalism has turned our well-being and suffering into a marketplace where human life is sold, commodified, traded, and consumed. All aspects of life and death have become horizons for exploitation and profit In the interests of capital the result is suffering not only is the land dying and water evaporating but we are also now expected to live in ever expanding deserts of social abandonment is the state responsible for these new forms of social violence and abandonment yes but the larger structure at work is capitalism Many of us within the left argue about the role of state power in building revolutionary movements and mechanisms for permanent transition out of capitalism. The Red Nation believes that divesting from state institutions like the military and redirecting those resources towards basic human rights is a necessary step towards dismantling capitalism. This means that we must turn towards not away from the state. Whatever our differences may be, State power matters in times like these when suffering is so profound and widespread that basic distribution of resources like health care and clean water can make the difference between life and death for millions. Tomorrow Will we wage successful revolutionary struggles by resurrecting our dead? This might work if we had proletariat zombie hordes at our disposal, but we don't. This is why we must wield the state to heal our bodies and build a successful revolutionary struggle that fights for life before we, too, are dead and unable to fight any longer. Area 1. Citizenship and Equal Rights for Everyone Why is this important? There are currently an estimated 47 million immigrants within the borders of the United States, with an estimated 12 million being undocumented. War, unequal trade relations, global wage disparities, underdevelopment, and climate change have created the conditions for massive migration from the Global South to the Global North. Migrants from the Global South face treacherous journeys, criminalization and detention, family separation, trafficking, unsafe and underpaid working conditions, murder, and severe restrictions on becoming citizens or legal workers. What needs our urgent attention? While progressives, leftists, and radicals in the United States have shown outrage about the flagrant brutality of U.S. immigration policy along the U.S.-Mexico border, there is still a culture of willful misunderstanding when it comes to the role of U.S. imperialism in the causing migration in the first place. We urge everyone to understand how U.S. imperialism operates in the following ways. The United States continues to play a pivotal role in causing war, conflicts, and overthrowing Global South governments in Libya, Syria, Somalia, Afghanistan, Iraq, Nigeria, Honduras, Bolivia, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Haiti, Colombia, and elsewhere. Using hybrid war techniques to combine ideological and military justification for the intervention elsewhere in the world, The United States also foments economic and political destabilization in countries like Venezuela and Iran that it deems, quote, hostile to American interests, for example, capitalism. According to the United Nations, neoliberal economic policies are responsible for most of the migration from these areas of the world to the global north and to other global south nations. The United States has also shaped a world economy predicated on free trade agreements. These agreements open up markets in the global south to heavily subsidize food commodities from the global north, causing farmers to go out of business. In addition, these agreements open up land and resources for privatized development, causing the displacement of indigenous populations and leaving environmental catastrophes. Enshrined in these agreements, are rules that ensure low wages and global wage disparities, as well as little to no protections for the environment. These conditions force many to migrate in search of jobs. Climate change caused by the burning of fossil fuels is also causing desertification, drought, stronger hurricanes, rising sea levels, and increasingly extreme weather patterns. This is exacerbating conflict and forcing migration. The United States has about 5% of the world's population, but consumes 25% of the world's oil. Additionally, the U.S. military is the number one consumer of oil. The United States is also the number one greenhouse gas emitter on the planet since 1750. What can you do about it? Ensuring citizenship in the United States is the basement of what we should be trying to achieve when we call for migrant justice. All progressive movements in the United States must demand at a minimum that all 47 million immigrants, regardless of current legal status, be given the unconditional option of citizenship, which will guarantee basic protections. This must include shutting down the camps, shutting down all detention facilities, abolishing ICE, ending family separations, and allowing people to migrate freely. We must also have an internationalist outlook and commitment. Building a mass anti-war and anti-imperialist movement to end war, sanctions, and resource extraction must be the priority of every progressive and left organization, regardless of their specific, quote, issue. Strengthening the international labor movement and uniting workers from the imperial core with workers in the global south must also be a priority. One of the demands of such efforts should be the creation of a global minimum wage to end the global wage disparities. Another priority for activists and comrades in the United States is demanding that the United States, as the number one polluter, pay reparations for war and climate debt. The United States climate debt as of 2015 was estimated at $4 trillion. Reparations will ensure that countries in the global south will be able to develop sustainably and guarantee sustainable livelihoods for their citizens. Area 2, free and sustainable housing for everyone. Why is this important? efforts that are currently in place to resolve the housing crisis in the united states are simply not enough although the united states is one of the wealthiest nations in the world poor and working class people suffer from a lack of adequate housing forcing them into uninhabitable homes or going without shelter at all beyond the more widely researched urban regions lurks an invisible housing crisis forced into overcrowded substandard homes Native people are suffering the most from lack of adequate livable homes. According to the Department of Housing and Urban Development, 42,000 to 85,000 natives would be homeless if sacrifices of squeezing into overcrowding homes and other situations were not made. Furthermore, HUD estimates an approximate total of 68,000 new housing units are needed in tribal areas to combat this invisible housing crisis a total that matches the more visible 10-year housing plan already in the works for New York's crisis. While poor working class and homeless people are suffering through this housing crisis, a surplus of empty private properties exists across the United States and funding could be made available for housing if it was a priority. However, housing is inaccessible when profit cannot be made of it. It's clear that we cannot depend on capitalist political system that values profit over bodies to fix this ongoing crisis in housing. What needs our urgent attention? Federally recognized tribes in the United States have relied heavily on funding from the Indian Housing Block Grant established through the Native American Housing Assistance and Self-Determination Act of 1996 to provide them housing over the past couple decades. In addition to the fast-growing Native American population, inflation has eroded the fixed amount of this funding since 1996. What makes the housing crisis on Native American reservations a threat to survival is the difficulty to sustain homes without the most basic of amenities, such as running water and electricity. Approximately 40% of homes in Navajo Nation, for instance, did not have running water and or electricity. To equip rural reservation homes with water and heat usually requires frequent long-distance travel to haul water and firewood. Public health becomes another concern when Native people in remote areas like the Southwest must haul water from windmills and other water sources from the ground. In many areas of the Navajo Nation, groundwater is contaminated due to the 521 abandoned uranium mines across the reservation. These largely ignored problems added to the housing crisis, making it increasingly difficult for the day-to-day survival of Native Native people. While efforts are made to protect urban areas, progress to provide adequate, safe housing and basic amenities is stagnant and severely underfunded in rural Native communities. What can you do about it? The red deal proposes free and sustainable housing for everyone our relatives deserve the basic human rights of shelter without having to worry about the possibility of homelessness and displacement demand the right to free and sustainable homes through grassroots direct action to place unsheltered people and families in empty surplus housing In Albuquerque, New Mexico, for example, there are hundreds of vacant single-family homes on the west side of the city that are available immediately for this type of use. Move towards ending private ownership of housing by practicing collective living instead of commodified relationships with land and space. This includes challenging the idea of the nuclear family as the most important social unit for determining housing designs and options. Share best practices in how to stop gentrification in multiple cities and geographies. Area 3. Free Education for Everyone Why is this important? Since boarding schools like the notorious Carlisle Indian School opened in 1879, indigenous children have been stolen out of their homes and subjected to physical, verbal and even sexual abuse to force them to unlearn their languages and cultures and ultimately break indigenous resistance to US dominance. Although the school was closed in 1918, the legacy of Carlisle lives on in modern-day colonial state practices that remove native kids from their homes, adopt them into white families, and strip them of their identities. Contemporary child welfare practices work in tandem with the public school system to continue this legacy of harm that targets native children. Public schools in New Mexico, for example, are funded by mostly gas and oil revenues generated by destructive extractive industry that poisons water, land, animals, and people. This means important gains like teacher salary increases and tuition breaks for working class college students are made at the expense of indigenous people. While this scenario may not be the case in all contexts, We cannot ignore the fundamental connections that exist between environmental justice, public education, public health, indigenous liberation, the labor struggle of teachers, and the rights of children. When we call for free education for everyone, it cannot be at the expense of land, water, or indigenous people. What needs our urgent attention? LGBTQ2 students are more likely to experience violence in schools than other students. 10% of all LGBTQ2 students have reported being threatened with a weapon in school and 34% report being bullied in school. Teaching is a highly gendered and therefore undervalued profession. Over 77% of all K-12 teachers are women, but they make almost 19% less than college-educated workers in other professions. Regarding Native education, most K-12 cultural curriculum that is available for Native students is overseen and decided upon by non-Native school boards and is really only limited to language learning. Graduation rates for Native people are shockingly low. Only 69% of Native students in public schools graduate high school. The percentage drops to 53% for Native students enrolled in Bureau of Indian Education schools, some of which are boarding schools. Of all Native students, only 17% go to college, and only 13% have post secondary degrees. What you can do about it. Tribal leaders or officials should be the only ones deciding what should be taught to Native students. This includes public schools that are not technically under the control of tribal jurisdictions. There needs to be more resources and support for LGBTQ2 students when experiencing violence or bullying. Until we can end our dependence on fossil fuels, the revenue made from gas and oil on reservations needs to be given directly to native communities to support their students on and off the reservation. There needs to be more cultural inclusion in public schools. The first place to start is mandatory indigenous American history in all K through 12 social studies classes. Given that the overwhelming majority of teachers in the United States are working class women, we must frame the struggle for free and universal education as a feminist labor issue. Area four, free health care for everyone. Why is this important? For the working class, interaction with the current health care system is violent. Even in the most favorable conditions, people attempting to use their private or employer-provided health insurance are met with a web of confusing bureaucracy, exorbitant hidden charges, denials for necessary procedures, and limited pharmacy formularies. Under capitalism, a worker's worth is tied directly to their ability to generate profit. Once a body is broken and no longer able to perform labor for ruling class owners, capitalism sees no problem with cutting a worker and usually their family loose from their income and health insurance. Meanwhile, pharmaceutical companies drive up the prices of essential drugs like insulin, leading to deaths because people who cannot afford the appropriate type and dosage attempt to ration their drugs in dangerous ways. And with each change in healthcare norms like the, quote, pain management revolution of the 1990s, doctors received kickbacks from pharmaceutical companies to overprescribe addictive medications like opioids, which has led directly to tens of thousands of overdose deaths in the United States alone. An estimated 27.5 million people, 8.5% of the U.S. population, went without health insurance in 2018 directly contributing to more deaths. And in 2019, fewer than half of American households can afford a $400 health emergency, even if these families have health insurance. Almost as many report that a $1,000 health emergency would put them on the streets and at risk of going hungry. Our current health care system traffics in the death of ordinary people. We want health care that values life. What needs our urgent attention? Trans health, nutrition, dental, behavioral, mental health, addiction, suicide, disability, reproductive health, sexual health, HIV, AIDS, birth, and abortion, and elder care. What can you do about it? Support new mothers. A significant portion of childbirth-related deaths happen in the weeks and months after birth, not during birth itself. Contemporary reproductive health practices completely ignore follow-up care for new mothers. Check in. Help. We all have mothers. The future needs mothers. Let's value our mothers. Organize direct action health services for unsheltered and poor relatives. This can include offering needle exchanges, providing regular free nutritious community meals, distributing Narcan to prevent opioid overdoses, or handing out condoms. The list of possibilities is endless. Encourage people, especially youth, to join grassroots organizing efforts. Organizing with other people creates a social context of accountability and relationality that helps with a number of health-related issues. helps to alleviate anxiety, stress, and depression related to alienation and isolation under capitalism. Instead of taking our anger out on ourselves or our families, organizing allows us to channel our feelings into concrete steps that facilitate our liberation. Because they are collective and working class, grassroots organizations often practice lateral caretaking especially for those who have been abandoned by society because they are poor or considered abnormal. Caretaking often comes in the form of assisting relatives with material needs like food, transportation, housing, and education. Grassroots organizations are often safe spaces for relatives who otherwise experience social violence in their homes or families. To put it simply, organizing makes you feel good because you are supported and part of a group working towards a common destiny of well-being. Area 5, Free and Accessible Public Transportation. Why is this important? As it currently stands, public transportation in the United States and among Native nations is largely inadequate and inaccessible. Although public transportation releases fewer emissions per person than the use of private vehicles, it is not made accessible to most people as a form of consistent and reliable transportation. Even though almost 10% of households do not have access to a private vehicle, most urban areas do have some form of public transit. But even with that, there are problems with it that discourage and prevent folks from using the public transit that does exist. For example, in Albuquerque, the largest urban area in New Mexico, the primary form of public transit, is the bus system. And although it provides service to nearly all of Albuquerque, there are only some areas that receive regular service. On some routes, usually those providing service to poorer communities and communities of color in Albuquerque, buses can sometimes come once every 45 minutes to an hour. And many times, the buses servicing these areas only operate until around 4 or 5 p.m., which is inadequate for most working folks. In many metropolitan areas, less than 50% of workplaces are accessible by folks using public transportation. Even then, this statistic considers a, quote, accessible workplace to be one that can be reached within 90 minutes, meaning that fewer workplaces are reasonably accessible for folks accessing public transportation. This contributes to folks remaining in poverty since access to reliable transportation is one of the biggest factors that prevents people from being in poverty. Although surveys show that over 70% of people in the United States want increased funding for public transportation, it still isn't a priority for federal or city governments across the U.S. The largest source of funding across state and local governments is law enforcement whose funding is often increased year to year, while projects and efforts that would actually benefit poor and working folks are overlooked and underfunded, with governments at every level showing that they are more committed to oppressing working folks, especially those who are black, brown, and indigenous, while simultaneously protecting and benefiting the rich and powerful. Funding for the police can sometimes be three times higher than the amount put aside for public transportation. In some places, such as in Pennsylvania, funding is being actively and intentionally diverted away from public transit programs and being funneled into police departments across the state. Among Native nations in the United States, lack and underfunding of public transportation and poor road conditions make travel from place to place difficult for many folks, as well as making things like doctor's visits and other necessities practically inaccessible to many As compared to state and local funding of road maintenance, road maintenance on all roads on reservation lands can be funded up to 10 times less per mile, with the average amount of funding being $500 per mile, while state and local funding is often between $4,000 and $5,000 per mile. Road conditions are also often poor, with over 60% of roads being unpaved and almost a quarter of bridges being deficient, making public transportation unfeasible, in most places. Tribal governments are unable to address this since tribal governments own and maintain less than 10% of roads on reservation lands, with the rest being under federal, state, county, and private ownership. When it comes to public transportation, although there is a large need for it, the vast majority of tribal entities do not have any form of public transportation, leaving folks to rely on service-specific transportation like the Indian Health Service or Head Start for their transportation needs. This, combined with poor road conditions, makes it extremely difficult for a lot of folks to access groceries, hospitals, and clinics, educational facilities, community centers, etc., and downright inaccessible for some. What needs our urgent attention? Law enforcement being funded vastly more than services like public transportation that actually benefit people. Public transportation having short hours, long waits between buses, limited routes, and limited access to workplaces, especially for folks living in poor communities. Native nations having no ownership or sovereignty over most of the roads on their lands. 80% of federal transportation appropriations are used for highways, which privilege and encourage private vehicle ownership, whereas only 20% goes towards transit. What can you do about it? Design campaigns that demand an increase in areas of service so more places are accessible through public transportation. Transit systems often own a significant portion of land in cities, especially land adjacent to important routes. This land can be used for building affordable homes that are close to these routes. Combining housing justice with calls for better public transportation in our local organizing can facilitate these connections and strengthen our efforts to support poor and working-class populations in urban areas. Advocate for your city governments to defund law enforcement and divert those funds into better public transit. Increase hours of service so more people, especially poor and working folks, can rely on public transit at hours they need to use it. This would mean more jobs for bus drivers whose labor struggles should always be connected to movements for free and accessible public transportation. Always advocate for indigenous people to have complete sovereignty over their lands and infrastructure, including roads, highways and transportation systems. Most federal funding that goes to city transit programs is used for capital development projects like building roads or buying or building buses. Most of these projects are contracted out to private corporations. Basically, public money doesn't go towards ensuring free and and accessible public transportation. It goes to private corporations. Advocate for public money to go to operational costs like driver wages, gas, and bus maintenance. Advocate for public money to pay workers to build and maintain buses as a form of green jobs. Most cities make very little money off of transit fares. Meanwhile, they spend millions on private corporations who own the whole production chain. Advocate for city governments to stop paying private corporations with public money and instead funnel federal appropriations into subsidizing transit so it is free for everyone regardless of income or access to resources. Area six, suicide prevention and non-carceral mental health services for all. Why is this important? Suicide is the second leading cause of death for people aged 15 to 34 in the United States and the second leading cause of death for people aged 15 to 24 in the world. These numbers increased by over 30% between 2001 and 2017. This means that our youth are killing themselves more frequently than they did 20 years ago. Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, Washington, Montana, South Dakota, and Wyoming rank among the states with the highest suicide rates in the country. What do these states have in common? High Native populations. Native people are at the top of the charts when it comes to suicide, and they kill themselves at rates higher than any other demographic in the country. While well, men commit suicide four times more often than women, women attempt suicide three times more often than men and are twice as likely to experience depression. LGBTQ2 youth are three times more likely to attempt suicide than cis hetero youth and 41 percent of trans adults report having attempted suicide at some point in their lives. This means that native youth across the board, LGBTQ2+, men and women, are at greatest risk of attempting and committing suicide. Youth suicide deaths are so common in Indian country that it's impossible to talk about health care, mental health, gender, sexuality, education, housing, or incarceration without also talking about suicide. Native youth are the literal future of our nations, future caretakers and caretakers of the future. Their deaths, whether by suicide or other forms of violence, are the single most important mental health issue we face. It is thus impossible to talk about mental health without specifically addressing Native youth suicide as a particular crisis in need of immediate and urgent redress. What needs our urgent attention? access to mental health services in indigenous communities is limited and often expensive as a result the correlation between mental health issues like depression and suicide rates are overlooked especially for youth indigenous children face extremely high rates and types of violence from an early age violence accounts for 75 percent of deaths for native youth aged 12 to 20. there is a strong correlation between early exposure to violence Mental Health and Suicide More than 90% of people who commit suicide suffer from depression, have a substance abuse disorder, or both. We must address depression and substance abuse in order to address suicide. What can you do about it? This is not an issue that can be fixed through better services or suicide prevention campaigns. Studies show that suicide rates are lower in Native communities that have strong self-determination over land, education, health, and governance. The only way this will happen is if everyone promotes decolonization, the return of Indigenous lands, and true self-determination for Indigenous people. Area 7 healthy indigenous and abundant food for everyone why is this important people should not be going hungry the united states is the largest food exporter in the world and third in total food production however 30 to 40 percent of the food produced is wasted and dumped in landfills which according to the usda in 2010 amounted to 161 billion dollars and 131 billion pounds worth of food. Additionally, around 41 million people in the United States face food insecurity, including 13 million children. But this issue isn't just about the lack of access to food. It's also the access to healthy and fresh foods. Food deserts are an issue all across the United States from low-income communities of color to mostly white conservative red-leaning communities. Food insecurity and access is an issue. Dollar stores are not a solution as they carry only foods loaded with preservatives and saturated fats and often leave out fresh meat, vegetables and dairy products. Fast food places are not a solution either. What needs our urgent attention? Reservations are often the epitome of food insecurity, access, and prices. A 2014 report from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, USDA, found that only 25.6% of the population residing in tribal reservations lived one mile or less from a supermarket, compared to 58.8% of the U.S. population. In addition, almost half of all residents in tribal reservations had incomes at or below 200% of the federal poverty level for example a household of five in 2019 had an annual income less than thirty thousand one hundred seventy dollars moreover of those living in extremely low income conditions on reservations only twenty seven point eight percent live in walking distance from a supermarket compared to sixty three point six percent of low-income individuals in the rest of the united states Despite these challenges, food isn't reduced in price. In fact, it's the opposite. A study from the Native Agriculture and Food Systems Institute found that on average, people living on reservations pay upwards to 100% more on food than those living off reservation. What can you do about it? The solution to providing healthy, indigenous, and abundant food for all is food sovereignty. You can promote food sovereignty by supporting local community food programs supporting local co-ops organizing a community garden and seed bank financing and opening municipal-owned grocery stores for example in baldwin florida creating a community network where you know others do not go hungry for example Pot Bangers in St. Louis, Missouri. Area 8, Clean Water and Air. Why is this important? In 2015, we saw the Animus and San Juan Rivers, rivers that are the main waterways for Diné farmers and ranchers in the Four Corners region of the United States, turn yellow from the Gold King mine spill. In early 2016, thousands of water protectors fought against the Dakota Access Pipeline to protect Mini-Sos, or the Missouri River, which is one of the largest waterways in North America. Earlier this year, we watched as indigenous people in Brazil, Paraguay, and Bolivia grieved the burning of their homelands in the Amazon, which many consider to be the result of deforestation. In four short years, we have seen catastrophic assaults on the earth and suppression of indigenous caretakers who protect and defend the waters and lands that comprise the world's lungs and arteries. This devastation has happened in the name of profit. For the capitalists of the world, clean water and air don't matter so long as there is a buck to be made by plundering the land and water. What needs our urgent attention? NGOs and nonprofit organizations which dominate the environmental protection sector unwittingly contribute to derailing and destroying indigenous movements to protect Pachamama, Mother Earth. We need a movement that de-centers NGOs and nonprofits because they hold a considerable amount of resources and power. These resources could be distributed to the people and communities who hold the solutions and knowledge on how to take care of the land and water. Another factor is our collective reliance on resources that affect air, water, and health of the communities. In the Four Corners region, the shift from coal to fracking still affects freshwater aquifers and air quality in New Mexico, along with causing higher cancer rates and respiratory disease. In the Permian Basin in Texas, an increase in fracking has led to higher methane rates that affect air quality, In the Pacific Northwest, the warming of waters and rise of sea levels due to climate change affect the land and water ecosystems. And in the Midwest, Monsanto farms release chemicals into rivers that make water undrinkable and even dangerous to touch. The shift in consciousness and how we consume resources, but also who we take leadership from, is crucial in restoring land, air, and water. What can you do about it? Stop taking leadership from NGOs and environmental non-profits and instead take leadership from grassroots indigenous and frontline organizations, communities, and people. Educate and organize around stopping fracking, mining, and resource extraction in indigenous communities. Understand that what happens to the land and water happens to the people, children, women, and LGBTQ2 relatives. Support indigenous led movements and organizations that protect air, land, and water. Understand that there are multiple levels of organizing and work that goes into protecting our air, land, and water, not just work done by nonprofits. There is strength in unity. Sharing resources and successes is important to forming a collective front against monsters destroying the environment. Area 9, Sexual Domestic Violence and Reproductive Justice Why is this important? Many of us are familiar with the epidemic of MMIWG2, but what is often left out of the conversation are the conditions that many of these people experience prior to their deaths and disappearances. Rampant sexual violence and domestic abuse in Native households, both on and off reservation, create hostile environments that render Native people more vulnerable to continued violence and death at the hands of the state, racist vigilantes, the extractivist industry, and non-Natives. However, the disturbing frequency of domestic and sexual violence among Native people is nothing other than the result of centuries of settler colonial violence and dispossession. Violence upon queer and feminine bodies was used as a primary tactic for the obliteration of indigenous governance structures. Because indigenous bodies stand in the way of access to the land, and because women are seen as the producers of native nations, through the European heteropatriarchal lens, violence against women, particularly sexual violence, is used as means of separating native people from the land. Non-men represent alternative political orders that replicate native nationhood, but women and queer people, especially when in positions of power, become the biggest threat to settler projects of dispossession. Michi Sagig Nishnabeg scholar, Leanne Bedesomosaki Simpson, states that the sexual violence is such an effective tool of conquest because of the overwhelming damage it inflicts upon families and it lasts for generations, instilling shame and humiliation that discourages any efforts to resist. This use of sexual violence as a means of disconnecting Native people from their land and culture, persisted through the boarding school era, where Native children were frequently subjected to sexual violence and physical abuse in residential schools. Even after the boarding school era, Native women and families were stripped of their autonomy via forced sterilizations, lack of access to equitable prenatal and postnatal care, poor reproductive health services, poverty, assimilation, exotification, and objectification. To this day forced sterilizations are rumored to still be taking place in Indian Health Service facilities in the form of misinformation about birth control and malpractice. This ongoing violence is not confined to just Native people. It deeply impacts all colonized people worldwide. In consecutive reports released in 2017 and 2019, the United Nations revealed that women and girls are killed by domestic violence more than any other crime. This information was released in a global study on homicide focusing on gender related killings. The study revealed that out of 87,000 women who were murdered around the world, 58% were killed by family members or partners with 34% being murdered by intimate partners and 24% murdered by other family members. According to the Indian Law Resource Center in the United States, violence against indigenous women has reached unprecedented levels. Four out of five American Indian and Alaskan Native women have experienced violence, and one in two have experienced sexual violence. Alaska Native women continue to suffer the highest rate of forcible sexual assault and have reported rates of domestic violence up to 10 times higher than the rest of the population. What needs our urgent attention? Youth. Native youth who see violence in the home are 75% more likely to become a future victim of violence or a perpetrator. And according to Indian Health Service data, violence accounts for 75% of deaths for Native youth, 12 to 20 years of age. Among Native youth alone, more than 60% have been recently exposed to violence in different sectors of their lives, at home, school, and within their community. Native men. Native men also have high victimization rates. More than four in five American Indian and Alaska Native men, Have experienced violence in their lifetime 27.5 percent have experienced sexual violence 43.2 percent have experienced physical violence by an intimate partner and 73 percent have experienced psychological aggression by an intimate partner trans relatives 65 percent of American Indian and Alaskan native respondents to the 2015 US transgender survey have been sexually assaulted at some point in their lifetimes Nearly three-quarters, 73% of respondents, experienced some form of intimate partner violence, including acts of coercive control. Nearly half, 46% of respondents who worked in the underground economy, such as sex work, drug sales, and other currently criminalized activities, in the year prior to the survey release, were sexually assaulted during that year. What You Can Do About It Everyone deserves access to a safe, loving home and all of the resources required to heal from ongoing intergenerational violence. The Red Deal proposes readily available resources for those fleeing domestic violence, such as violent shelters that are mindful of the specific needs of native women and easy to reach from the rural reservation and urban spaces. To do this, consider volunteering at already existing shelters or organizing community members to provide safe spaces and basic necessities to those fleeing domestic violence. This can look like creating mutual aid networks where people can create call lists or list serves for those able to house or assist people fleeing domestic violence with basic necessities such as transportation, childcare, groceries, etc. Access to accurate sexual education and access to the full range of reproductive health services. To do this, consider organizing a campaign calling for the destigmatization of safer sex practices and full body sovereignty. This includes the destigmatization of abortion, birth control, STI, and HIV testing, and teaching youth about consent. Freedom from domestic and sexual violence for all. To do this, consider hosting teach ins in your community where important discussions about unlearning toxic masculinity. And heteropatriarchal violence can be held. Provide spaces where individuals might be able to obtain more resources about sexual health, healthy relationships, mental health, and having these difficult conversations in the home. Area 10 End MMIWG 2. Why is this important? The Epidemic of Missing and Murdered Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit People (MMIWG2) is rarely framed as an example of border town violence, which it itself is often described as a recent phenomenon. Border town violence is a form of state violence that has upheld the colonial project of resource exploitation, relocation, displacement, and genocide since the first military outposts and forts were constructed along the western, quote, frontier of the fledgling United States. Border town violence is nothing more than contemporary frontier violence. Most border towns today were once centers for the most horrendous frontier violence. Places like Chamberlain, South Dakota, and Gallup, New Mexico, served as centers of trade where white settlers not only sold and traded goods like fur, but also Native women and children. Native women and girls were lured, sold, and kidnapped to be sex trafficked to soldiers and traders who manned these outposts and forts. Border towns are the original man camps. One of the first lines of struggle to end border town violence is a campaign to end MMIWG2. Today, most people are familiar with man camps as a result of gas and oil extractivist projects presence of gas and oil makes it clear that the united states never stopped its project of displacement and elimination of native people the land continues to be stolen for these projects the poorest and most vulnerable communities are coerced into selling their land to multinational oil companies yet remain in poverty once corporations have taken all the land they can offer meanwhile the richest in the world continue to siphon wealth from these communities As a result of this continual displacement, 71% of indigenous people live in urban spaces. There is no escape from this cycle of violence on or off the reservation. MMIWG-2 is a continuous violent struggle in our communities. Homicide is the third leading cause of violence against Native women in the U.S. In a recent report from the Urban Indian Indian Health Institute, Albuquerque, New Mexico has one of the highest numbers of MMIWG-2. This is no coincidence as New Mexico depends on gas and oil development to fund important social services in the state. The Urban Indian Health Institute, UIHI, interviewed 71 police departments across the United States and identified over 500 cases of MMIWG-2. Yet the Santa Fe, New Mexico Police Department admitted to not keeping track of MMIWG-2 and domestic violence cases because, quote, most Native women have Spanish surnames. What needs our urgent attention? Stop advocating for more cops to address MMIWG-2. Countless efforts to bring awareness through federal legislation and state task forces are created while the ongoing settler violence continues. It is clear that we cannot depend on state institutions to put an end to MMIWG-2. This includes cops. We cannot depend on cops to take MMIWG-2 cases seriously when over 40% of cops are domestic abusers themselves. Cops are part of the problem, not the solution. LLBTQ2 Relatives Our queer, trans, and gender non-conforming relatives experience domestic violence and police violence in border towns at the highest rates. Because they are frequently disowned by families and discriminated against in workplaces, they can become dependent on underground economies like sex work, which makes them more susceptible to trafficking that takes place in and around man camps, as well as police violence because of criminalization. Missing and Murdered Indigenous Men or People, M-M-I-M-P. Though Native people make up less than a percent of the U.S. population, they are murdered by police at the highest rates. On top of this, unsheltered Native people are victims of vigilante violence in border towns, a practice known as, quote, Indian rolling. Some of the most heinous examples of this racist violence are the Chokecherry Canyon murders in Farmington, New Mexico, and more recently, the torture and killing of Cowboy and Rabbit and the murder of Ronnie Ross in Albuquerque. Domestic Violence Domestic violence is fundamentally about power and control over someone through male privilege, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, and intimidation. These forms of violence happen in the realm of everyday life in our homes, families, and intimate relationships. Domestic violence occurs so often that it is normalized and oftentimes goes unreported because people don't see it as violence. We need to change how we think about violence. Violence isn't just about war or extreme physical altercations like fights. The most common form of violence is domestic violence. What can you do about it? Get involved with an existing campaign. Organizations doing vital work are Sovereign Bodies Institute, the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women, and Native Youth Sexual Health Network. You can also start your own campaign if there is nothing being organized around you. Start by hosting workshops, study groups, fundraisers, or other events that bring awareness to MMIWG2. Host actions, demonstrations, or protests when there is no justice for MMIWG2. When Diné mother L'Oreal Sinjin was murdered by the racist cop Austin Shipley in the border town of Winslow, Arizona in 2016, he was left free to roam the streets. The Red Nation along with her family demanded action and held a number of protests which led to the creation of the Border Town Violence Coalition, a report on border town violence, and an investigation by the Navajo Nation of the Winslow Police Department. Create accessible literature and online documents that can be easily circulated within your community that contain facts about MMIWG2 and information about what someone can do to assist those fleeing domestic violence, sexual violence, and those that may be victims of sex trafficking. It's important to have conversations with family about how negative attitudes about women and LGBTQ2 relatives contribute to the epidemic of violence. And that completes the Red Deal, Part 2, Heal Our Bodies. You can find the Red Deal at therednation.org. And that will wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can uh, find You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can check out all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. And you can listen to this in all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. And now, a moment of zin. Thanks for listening.
1: Well, the early Indian societies of North America, uh, no, really, if you, uh, that were remarkably well, they didn't have much to share but what they had they shared and uh, the, you read the reports of, of the, the Jesuit missionaries who came here and studied the, the way the uh, indigenous people here lived and uh, and then wrote these reports, they, 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 there's an amazing amount of documentation of, of much more closely examined than even modern anthropologists have done with, with societies. And uh, there's a man named William Brandon who, who went through the archives in, in France to see what the Jesuits wrote back about. And you might think, well, he's romanticizing, and it's possible to romanticize ancient civilizations and some of them were warlike and, and violent and so on. But also there were societies in those times, there were Indian societies in those times Uh, with a remarkable sharing of all the goods and with a remarkable equality between men and women. In fact, a matriarchal society in many of these instances, but a society in which the relations between men and women were better than the relations between men and women in modern times. I'm not pointing to these as things to which we must return, uh, or, uh, or saying things were ideal then. And I don't even think it's necessary to find as some people think you mu- you must find somewhere a place where the really good society existed, otherwise we won 't believe one is possible and, and i don 't think it 's necessary to do that because I think the, I think the human uh, I think human beings are capable of creating things that were never created before, and I, I refuse to believe that 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 only the things that have happened in the human past exhaust the possibilities for the human race. I don't think that's, that's the case. Yes.